Hello, I'm Harry Clennon, and you're listening to Focus by Spectacles. Today, in polls we trust, Democrats are scrambling to develop a strategy for winning in a bad political environment. Polls can help, but they won't be nearly enough. In philosophy, there's a dilemma known as the is-ought problem. It goes something like this. You can't make a moral judgment based only on the facts of a case. For example, we can't say that the sky is blue and so it should stay that way. Moral conclusions about what ought to be can't be shaped only by what is, especially as our beliefs about what ought to be often inform our very perception of what is. Of course, nobody actually thinks like that. We make moral judgments all the time and justify them on the basis of the facts as we perceive them, particularly in our mostly secular society in which empirical or scientific knowledge is highly valued. All of this, surprisingly, brings me to the elections in Virginia and New Jersey held on Tuesday, November 2nd. In Virginia's gubernatorial race, former Democratic Governor Terry McAuliffe was defeated by the Republican businessman Glenn Youngkin. In New Jersey, incumbent Democratic Governor Phil Murphy won re-election by a significantly smaller margin than was expected over his Republican opponent, Jack Chatterelli. Other elections took place in both states, along with local races in other states, but Democrats performed poorly across the board. That probably sounds a bit divorced from philosophical babble about is and ought, but it isn't. In the aftermath of the elections, there's been an explosion of commentary among both political parties about which strategies work and which ones don't in our extraordinarily polarized era. Everyone who cares about politics and has the platform to speak their mind is taking their shot to explain the is of what happened and why it just so happens to confirm their own assumptions of what ought to happen. Because I'm a Democrat, and because I'm more steeped in the discourse that takes place between the various factions of the Democratic Party, I'm going to focus my analysis there. But first, a quick note on the Republicans. There is debate aplenty in the conservative movement right now about what conservatism really means. But when it comes to the question of how to win elections, the debate is both simple and largely pointless because it all rests on a singular individual, Donald Trump. The question for Republicans, debated back and forth in the pages of publications like the National Review and the Washington Examiner, is if the party has a better chance of winning power with Mr. Trump at its head or without him. Perhaps an inoffensive figure like Mr. Yunkin, who seems to have won back GOP defectors in Virginia's suburbs while expanding on Mr. Trump's lead in rural areas, is the ticket to the future. Or perhaps he isn't. Mr. Trump endorsed Mr. Yunkin and may have signaled to certain constituencies that they could trust him. In either case, however, the debate is moot in the short term. Mr. Trump is still overwhelmingly favored by rank-and-file Republican voters, many of whom believed that the 2020 election was fraudulent. To that end, conservative elites can strategize about how to win elections all they want, but ultimately it's up to Mr. Trump himself, not them. 
Moreover, conservatives probably have less need to strategize. The combination of demographics and the institutional design of the United States electoral system leaves the GOP heavily favored to win elections in the near future. Taking together the ambiguity of a post-Trump politics, sentiment among the rank and file that the 2020 election was fraudulent, and conservative elites' awareness of the favorable political landscape, strategy seems less important. For Democrats, however, getting strategy right seems critical, even existential, and different factions of the party have their favored strategies for winning. David Shore is the guru of a new movement among centrist Democrats known as popularism. Shore's contention is that Democrats need to follow opinion polls, do what appears to be popular, and nothing else. According to Shore, this is the way to overcome waning support among white working class voters and structural disadvantages in the United States Senate. That would mean moving away from big-ticket, universal proposals like Medicare for All in favor of more limited, means-tested policies. In addition, Shore suggests, along with Matthew Iglesias, who runs the Slow Boring newsletter and is a proponent of popularism himself, that Democrats need to tack right on cultural issues by rejecting defund the police and the movement to add teachings influenced by critical race theory to primary and secondary school curricula. Shore and Iglesias point to the diverse coalition of voters built by Barack Obama, who they claim won elections by avoiding the topic of race and expressing culturally conservative values. But as the New Republic's Osita Nwanevu points out, Mr. Obama's two terms in office saw the state and local foundations of the Democratic Party collapse entirely. Although Mr. Obama may have cautiously avoided diving into the racial question, he was nonetheless perceived as an outsider to the white working class. Nwanavu's article in The New Republic also shows the limits of looking to Mr. Obama's presidency as an exemplar of popularism with respect to policy. The fact of the matter is that even as American pundits and consultants have come to rely extensively on public opinion data to give the country its is, and then in turn its ought, the American public, the American public is highly capricious. Simply asking a representative sample of Americans whether they support a policy isn't as illuminating as someone like David Shore thinks it is. The article in The New Republic doesn't use this particular example, but the Obama administration's flagship policy, the Affordable Care Act, or ACA, serves to demonstrate popularism's shortcomings. The ACA, with a combination of modest welfare increases and market-friendly components, was clearly designed not to be particularly divisive among the American public, or with the private insurance companies that might otherwise oppose it. Indeed, the original policy came from a proposal by the Conservative Heritage Foundation and was modeled on a similar program implemented in Massachusetts by then-Governor Mitt Romney. Rather than be a smashing hit, however, the ACA became the target of a dedicated media assault by the Republican Party. Democrats lost the House of Representatives in the 2010 midterms, in no small part because of backlash against the ACA. But in the years following its implementation, the Affordable Care Act actually gained in popularity, to the point that Donald Trump's attempt to repeal and replace it failed. Parts of the Affordable Care Act have been chipped away over the years, but today, it's actually more popular than it's ever been, at least according to opinion polls. The problem, then, with popularism is that it's just not a silver bullet 
to glean the most popular policy from a public opinion survey and embrace it. Surveys tell you, at the very best, what people think today with absolutely no guidance about how they may feel tomorrow. And it's also true that David Shore, despite the genuine value of some of his insights, is a consultant who is presumably paid to conduct his polls by candidates and organizations with deep pockets. He doesn't reveal who his clients are. Matthew Iglesias, who has a valuable perspective on American politics, is himself a centrist. That doesn't mean that their recommendations are useless or condemnable, but it does present the real possibility that their respective diagnoses of what is are actually their views of what ought to be, just by another name. Lest the reader think I'm opening a broadside against the center-left on behalf of the left, I'm not. Progressives suffer from this exact same problem. Their own vein of popularism that, demonstrating the flaws of the approach, just so happens to recommend an entirely different political strategy. Progressives have insisted that if the Democratic Party had simply nominated Bernie Sanders as its candidate for the White House in 2016, that he would have won the presidency. In the aftermath of the 2020 election, New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez publicly argued that Democrats wouldn't have lost seats in the House of Representatives if they had embraced Medicare for All. And just days ago, the socialist magazine Jacobin published a survey it conducted with the polling outfit YouGov that suggests that very same thing, that working-class voters, shockingly, prefer Medicare for All to moderate or conservative alternatives. Maybe all of this is true. Maybe there's a latent progressive majority waiting in the wings for the right candidate, who could awaken independents and non-voters to the progressive cause if they speak the right way and campaign on the right issues. But I doubt it. As Jacobin's own survey suggests, non-voters are less, not more, likely to vote for progressive candidates. Working-class independents and Republicans are still more likely to vote for moderate or conservative candidates. What seems dangerous to me is that political commentators, both well to the left and toward the center of the Democratic Party, are finding that voters support policies that, in one way or another, fit their prior beliefs about what's good. That doesn't mean that the commentariat is manipulating public opinion data. There are places where the reality of unpopularity sets in. Matthew Iglesias, for example, has written about the need to quietly fit unpopular but necessary things into the party's agenda, and the Jacobin survey finds that white working-class voters are not likely to support a candidate that centers systemic racial injustice. But pundits are claiming that the American people tend to fall in line with their own general political outlooks, and advocating that candidates contort themselves to fit into what opinion polls say they should do. That just isn't a silver bullet strategy for winning elections. Chasing some elusive public opinion, the presentations of which may themselves be the product of what certain party factions want it to be, is unlikely to meaningfully alter the political landscape in Democrats' favor. It's not clear how much Americans actually care about policy. One commentator posits that they are primarily concerned with, quote, vibes, unquote. To the extent that they do care, it's hardly clear which policies they support or if they'd even support them long enough to reward the politicians who implemented them in the next election. This is all to say that there's some need for a rebalancing of is and ought in American politics. Of course, it's true that in a representative democracy, candidates compete for votes and thus need to have some sense of what voters want. And there's no doubt that they need to strategize around such concerns. But there are limits to this approach. 
As I noted earlier, modern pundits, activists, and politicians tend to be extraordinarily reliant on what they see as empirical data to inform how they interpret the world and act within it. But public opinion surveys don't agree on what voters want, and their tendency to confirm what the groups citing or commissioning them believe or are selling suggests that they do not constitute iron facts from which reliable strategies can be deduced. We in the commentariat don't know what to do, much as we'd like to, but we might actually be doing the public a service if we debated our ideas on their own terms, rather than obscuring them in debates about what can win and what can't. That's all for today. If you enjoyed, consider subscribing to Spectacles Out Loud to hear each new article of focus and insight read aloud. If you'd prefer more conversational podcasts from Spectacles, follow the link in the show notes to Spectacles In Conversation to hear discussions between the editors from Bird's Eye and Reflections. If you'd like to read or make a comment on this article, there will also be a link in the show notes to our website where you'll be able to sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. Thanks for tuning in. 